command that you have to have this tight outline. There's certainly no command that you have to have three points, and sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I think our minds do... Our minds crave some structure. They they typically need sort of a a skeleton to hang a lot of thoughts on. So I like to have some structure to the sermons. And uh, and this week as I came to this text, I was thinking about that again, like I do any, any week that I preach. And I thought about something that we've talked about semi-regularly as we've looked at different portions of Scripture, and it's this, that any time you come to a passage of the Bible, there are two questions you can ask of any passage that will really help you see how does this passage show me the gospel. Now, what do we mean by the gospel? That's just the biblical term for the good news. The good news of cosmic proportions, not just individual proportions of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. And sometimes you come to a passage and Jesus is right there. He may even be talking about the gospel, and it's really straightforward. But sometimes you might come to a genealogy or a battle, or like last summer where you get these really tedious, uh, detailed explanations of how to build the tabernacle. When you come to those kind of passages, how do you see the gospel when there's no mention of Jesus or the cross or salvation or the word gospel. The two questions that we should ask of any passage are, what does this passage show me about myself and people like me who need redeeming? And what does this passage show me about God who does the redeeming? What does it show me about us that need the redeeming? What does it show me about God who need the redeeming? And as I looked at this passage and we're wrapping up John, I thought... Let's make that the structure of this look into this final passage. And those are the questions we're going to ask. What does this passage show me about myself, about us? What does it show me about God? How is this showing me the good news? Look with me at John 21, verse 9. The context is Jesus is now risen from the dead. He has appeared to His disciples several times. That's going to be mentioned in the passage. He has not ascended back into heaven yet, but is going to before long. Peter and the fellow apostles have been fishing through the night, and Jesus meets them on the shore and prepares breakfast for them. If you had any doubts about Jesus' resurrection being literal, bodily, tangible... Physical, Jesus sits on the shore with His apostles and cooks them breakfast. John 21, verse 9. When they, the disciples, got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish." 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask Him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, 
son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Amen. Let's look at these two questions. What does this passage show us about ourselves that need the saving, need the redeeming? What does this passage show us about God who does the redeeming? Let's look at ourselves first. And I just want to look at one point here, and it's this. Grief or sadness about our sin can be bad or good. Grief about our own sin can be bad or good. Now, look in verse 17. This is, this is a somewhat famous incident in the life of Peter. And as you, if you take the text on its own terms, apparently this exchange between Jesus and Peter takes place in front of the other disciples. There doesn't seem to be a break where they privately walk away and talk. They've just had breakfast together. They're, they're there together by the water, with the fish, by the fire, eating. And Jesus looks at Peter and asks him these questions. And he asks him, do you love me? Three times. Now, that seems strange, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Why does that make sense? What, what other little set of three did we see in Peter's life recently in the Gospels? And it's Peter's denials of Jesus, Right? That Peter, always the one to be the most vocal, always the one to say, I'll do it, or I'll answer, or how about this? He said, Lord, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus told him, before this night is over with, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no way, and he denied him three times. And so, Jesus, and it's a strange passage, making breakfast for them, looks at Peter and says, Simon... Son of John, do you love me? And he says it three times. He asked him three times. And it says in verse 17 that at the end of those, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? Now, I want you to think about this. This is not the first time that we've seen Peter grieved, it's the second time. And I'm drawing from the other Gospels. You know, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And a detail that the other three Gospels give, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that after Peter denied Jesus that third time, and he didn't just say, I've never known him, he called down curses 
I mean, he put some rhetorical exclamation points on it. I've never met that guy. And on the third one, the rooster crows. Jesus' prediction comes true. And it says that right after that, here's how Matthew and Luke put, put it. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And Mark says this, this may even be more strong, that Peter broke down and wept. Isn't that vivid? He broke down and wept. He's grieved over what he did in sinning against Jesus. But does it change him? Does that change him? And then you get this second time, Jesus is in very... I mean, he's just right across the fire from him and asking these questions. And after the third, when it says Peter is grieved. Now, there's bad grief about sin and there's good grief about sin. I want to read you a passage. As a pastor, I would say what I'm about to read to you would be in my top three passages that I take people to over and over and over again. If I've got just a few little uh, tools in my toolbox as a pastor, this is one of my favorite ones because all the time I talk to people who are aware that they've sinned and they feel bad about it. But then the question is, what kind of bad feeling do you have? There's good bad feeling and there's bad bad feeling. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians when he was writing this church in Corinth, he refers to another letter. And apparently in this other letter, whether it's 1 Corinthians or another one that we don't have, he roughed up the Corinthians pretty well. Very demonstrative with them. And it hurt their feelings. And it grieved them about their sin. And listen to what Paul says. This is in 2 Corinthians. He says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter... By the way, this is the same Greek word as in our passage that Peter was grieved. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And get this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me say this. There's a lot about that period of time between Jesus' crucifixion and His ascension that we don't understand what the apostles were doing or thinking or feeling. But apparently... That first sense of grief when, Jesus, uh, when Peter broke down and wept, he felt awful, but it didn't change him. But when Jesus looked him in the eye and kept asking him, do you love me, and it grieved him, this is when he changed. And what is the difference? This is extremely relevant to us because it may be, especially if you're from a church background, especially if you interact with the Bible, fairly regularly, you look at your life and then you look at how you don't match up and, and sometimes you really just blow it in a royal way and maybe in front of a lot of people and it just gets all over you and you're grieved. What do you do with the grief? There's bad grief and there's good grief. Bad grief is when you feel bad 
and you keep looking at your own sin. And you know what the irony is? That's actually a form of pride. Now, how could that be? Because, you know, you feel crushed, you feel, you feel crummy, you feel like uh, I'm a big sinner. How could that possibly be pride? I thought pride is when you feel amazing and arrogant. Look at me, I'm the man. Pride is absorption with self. And when we disobey God, and then we're aware of it, and we keep staring at it, look at how I let God down, and we stop there, that's actually a form of pride. It will not change you. It will actually push you toward despair. What's good grief? Good grief. But there is good grief. What is good grief? Good grief is when you're grieved. Think about who God is. Think about how He gives me every good gift I have. Think about how He loves me. Think about how His law is a manifestation of His love. Look how I've disobeyed. And when you see that and we're grieved to look at it for what it is and then go to Jesus. And I know I say this a lot, but if if you stay around, you're going to hear this a lot. Repenting is not, I've been doing wrong and I'm going to get myself together and I'm going to do right. Repenting is turning, it's a turn, from what we know is bad about us and from the things that we're proud of about ourselves and turning to God. Turning to Christ and saying, have mercy. And then living out of that. When Peter went out and wept bitterly, that did not change him. What changed him is when Jesus looked at him and said, do you love me? And it was awkward. Peter may very well have been really on the outs with the other apostles because they heard him say, me? No, never. And he royally denied Jesus. Maybe they're on the outs with him. And Jesus restores him in front of those guys. But he's saying what? Look at me. Follow me. Turn to me. That is good grief for sin. And we all need that. When you sense that you have let God down, what do you do with it? Feel bad enough long enough? Be like the minister in Scarlet Letter, stay up all night, night vigils, stare at a candle, pray? Or turn to Jesus? Now that's us. What do we see about God in this passage? And keep in mind that in Scripture... It's made very clear, Jesus is God. As we're seeing Jesus do things, we're learning about God. In fact, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What do we see here about God? First off this, Jesus can make very earthy sinners into lambs. Jesus can make very earthy sinners into lambs. The more I looked at this passage, it began to hit me. You can almost smell this passage. It's so earthy. I mean, you think about, if if we walked up to this scene, there's the smell of the charcoal fire, and there's 153 fish. You can definitely smell 153 fish. And throughout 2,000 years of church history, there have been just wacky explanations of the significance of the number 153. I would just say this. If you made a living fishing, and you even divided profits by dividing up fish and the most you had ever counted was 153, you would remember 153. And the eyewitness would put it in the account. 
If there's a charcoal fire, there's 153 fish, there, there's uh, smelly men, there's B.O. Let's just say it. There's B.O. And you might say, that's not in the passage. No, it's not in the passage. Like, there's not air in the passage. But it has to be that way. Men up all night, manual labor, working outside, there's B.O. And what does Jesus say? When he's speaking to Peter, when he's restoring him and he's charging him, he, he says, I want you to do something. I'm charging you to do something. And he's talking about all of his followers for the present and the future. And the last two times he calls them his sheep. But what did he call them the first time? He calls them his lambs. Now... That image of sheep is very old. It was in the call to worship. You know, we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. That's all through the Scriptures. He's the great shepherd. We're the sheep. But there's something about that word lamb. Uh, two members of our church, I don't know if I don't see them this morning, but Al, uh, Al and Deb Potter have a farm in Pelzer, members of this church. And they also have a, a booth at the Saturday market on Main Street. And uh, one morning, just a few weeks ago, Deb brought a lamb to her, her booth. And it was interesting, every time this lamb was brought out, people would just, you know, no pun intended, flock around it and, uh, and just look at it. And of course, you can guess that children would do that. And they would coo over it. And you know there's that kind of baby talk that we use with pets? Do you know the baby talk that you use with pets? Like, you, you know, you don't just call the pet by its name, but you start to go, you know, would you, would you, would you, you know, that kind of... That people saw this lamb and they started to do that. And the, the one that I saw that stuck with me was not children doing that. I, I just happened to be standing in the right place when this happened. Here's the booth. Here's Main Street. Here's Deb with the lamb. And I saw a guy walking by and he was talking to a group that he was with. And he said, hey, look, I'll meet you all in just a second. Hey! Just, it just jumped out of him like, look at the lamb! And here's the thing, we don't, want to, we don't want to sentimentalize the text. But that's what lambs are like. And it would be amazing if Jesus had said, Hey, all those ones who follow me now, all those ones who will follow me in the future, feed God's lambs. That would be great. But what does he say? They're my lambs. Take care of my lambs. Is with these earthy... If you had marched this group of men into a European cathedral and showed them a stained glass depiction of the apostles, they would have said, who are those? Who are those? Are those angels? If we said, no, those are you. That, that's, that's the apostles. I, th- they would have looked at us like we're crazy. I mean, I'm sure they would have asked... You know, there's a book that actually talks about this. It's called The Bible. You know, And in that book, you would find that we were from the East... And a lot of us did manual labor. We didn't look anything like that. These earthy guys, the future leadership of the church, who are going to lead all the lambs of the future, all Jesus' followers are His lambs. Vikings that were converted a thousand years ago. Talk about non-sentimental. Warriors, sailors craftsmen, tough as nails. Some became Christians, Jesus' lambs. 
African tribes, living in poverty, heat, extreme circumstances, maybe nothing pretty to be seen. Jesus' lambs. Us. I mean, think about this. Think about when you look in the mirror and it's morning and you've got the kind of morning bloated face and your hair is greasy and you just don't like you. Sometimes we like us, but sometimes we don't like us. And this is one of those mornings where you're looking going, Jesus loves that. I don't love that. Jesus loves that. The person you're looking at if you, if you trust Jesus Christ for your sins, is His Lamb. He loves His lambs. And there's a real practical application that He gave about that. He wants His lambs to be fed and tended. Fed and tended. I want to say just two things real briefly. One is this. Why do we have a sermon every week? Why is this here? Is, this, is having a sermon every Sunday just a Presbyterian tradition? Or a Baptist tradition? Or a Methodist tradition? They're doing it all over the city right now. Is this some kind of residue that's just kind of a Western rationalistic thing that we decided to do because Christianity was full of eggheads that like lectures, and so we're going to have sermons? Is that, is that why we do this? The reason that we do this is because you are Jesus' lambs. If you believe in Jesus, you are His lambs. You are His sheep. And the gospel is lamb food. The Word of God is sheep feed. And I, I, want, I want you to think about how you think about the sermon. The sermon is not a syringe full of one week's worth of inspiration. And so you come in and kind of thunk and get your hit for the week and, all right, I'm going to make it another week. We are sheep. This is the food without which we die, with which we live and we thrive. The other thing is this. One of the best comments on this text ever written was by Peter. And he wrote this years later in 1 Peter. He said, Patrick Fant, Brian Habig, Mark Bacher, from a distance, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. The elders are God's provision for tending. And since we are about, in a few months, to nominate candidates to be new elders as well as new deacons, let me say this to you. Do not nominate a man that you would not want to tend you. Jesus loves His sheep, and one of His loving provisions is through officers who feed and tend. 
Another thing we learn about God, I'm going to end with this, is that Jesus wants a following from love. Jesus wants a following from love. What is the last thing in our passage? Jesus has been very direct with Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the last thing he says to him is what? Follow me. That takes us all the way back to John 1. That's the first thing he said when he called his disciples. Follow me. And you go all the way to the end, and what is he still saying? Follow me. Follow me why? Because you love me. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus was asked by somebody who was trying to trip him up, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the things he could have said, what he said was, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the most important thing is to love God. You get to the end of the Bible when Jesus has ascended into heaven and there are these letters to early churches. One of the most alarming ones to me personally is a letter where he says this to a church. You have so much going for you. You have sound doctrine. You keep away from bad doctrine. You work hard. You're diligent. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Very alarming that you can be busy for Jesus and not love Him. And as Jesus is looking at Peter, restoring him, the question He's asking is not, are you going to get it together? Are you going to keep the commandments better? Are you ever going to deny me again? You're going to go into some dicey situations. And He basically predicts Peter's martyrdom. Those last few verses... You're going to do what you should. That's not what he asks. What he asks is this. Do you love me? Where does that love come from? If you don't have love for Jesus, you can't just manufacture it. Where do you get it if you need it? And I want to end with my favorite part about this passage. What does it say in verse 9? When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And I want you to think about this. There's a particular Greek word for charcoal fire. And it's a different Greek word than the normal word for a wood fire. And it only shows up twice in John. This is the second place. And this is so... Besides being true as an eyewitness account, this is so brilliant what John... Let us see. The first place we saw a charcoal fire was just a little bit before this. It was in the courtyard of the high priest. And there were people gathered around it at night keeping warm. And when Peter was watching Jesus under arrest, being taken into the high priest's quarters to be interrogated, and he stayed back, he went over by this charcoal fire to warm himself. And a slave girl said, weren't, weren't you with him? Aren't you one of his followers? And the denials begin by this charcoal fire. And what does John let us see at the end? At the very end, up on the, up on the shore, on the land, Jesus has made a charcoal fire. And another group is sitting around it. And he looks over 
at this same man and says, Do you love me? Different fire. And the love of Jesus. No lectures, no scolding, but the honest question. To the point where it both cuts the heart and restores Peter. Now, if you're hearing this, you may think, okay, yeah, that, that is amazing. I think that would get through to me, but I don't think Jesus is going to appear on earth and make me a meal. Yes, He does. And the reason that we do this every week is because this is an opportunity for you to experience what Peter experienced. And we have sat around tables and screamed at one another. We have sat around tables and overeaten with no thought for the poor. We have sat around tables and thought about what is the next fun thing I'm going to do with my energy and my life with no thought about building his kingdom. And he sets another table for us, and in a very real way, he asks us, Do you love me? And where the love comes from is his love that is already there. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're saying, I kind of want to love Him, but I, I, don't, I can't make myself love Him. What do I do? You turn to Him and say, have mercy on me. I can't make myself love you. Will you show me that you love me? That I might love you back. If you are here and you do know Christ, but your heart has grown cold, please, please, I'm begging you, Please don't go out of here and say, I'm going to get my life disciplined. I'm going to get it together and I'm going to love Jesus better. My plea for you is today, maybe even in your seat right now, to turn to Him and say, I'm your lamb. I'm your sheep. I've never contributed anything but the sin. I do want to follow you. Have mercy on me yet again. And He will be there in His mercy, welcoming you. This table reminds us of that. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks. Let's do so. Heavenly Father, You spread a table for us in the presence of our enemies. As we now come together in Jesus' name and eat His flesh and drink His blood in the presence of the devil and all His minions, we give You thanks for precious Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. After he had given thanks, he broke it and gave the bread to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you.
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. 